Hollywood, mid-1940s. The glitter, the glamour. Tinseltown at its most tinselly. The decade that gave us Citizen Kane and Casablanca. Song and dance numbers from the likes of Judy Garland and Fred Astaire. The swashbuckling of Errol Flynn. The sheer star power of Cary Grant and Betty Grable. The Dream Factory, they called it, where studios churned out mile after mile of celluloid star stuff that captured imaginations and earned a place in our cultural memory. Let's take a little trip back in time and pay a visit to a producer's office at 20th Century Fox, where someone's about to pitch the next big box office draw. Boss, I got a swell idea for a picture. It's gonna knock your Argyle socks right off. Well, all right, let's hear it. It's the story of a little girl and Santa Claus. Ooh, a Christmas picture. I like it. But get this, we'll release it in June. Um... And none of our advertising will even mention the Christmas stuff. But it is a Christmas picture. It has Santa Claus, right? Two Santas. One who's drunk and another who's maybe crazy. The crazy one even clocks a fella over the head with an umbrella. A big part of the plot is this public psychological competency hearing for him. Public comp- You mentioned a little girl. Is this a children's picture? Could be. But the little girl doesn't believe in Santa Claus. Well, I can't imagine how that could- Boss, I'm telling you, this one's got Oscar written all over it. It could even go on to be a classic. (sighs) And just what are you calling this picture? Miracle on 34th Street. Now, of course, no such conversation really ever took place. Not that I know of, anyway. But everything you just heard in it is absolutely true. Miracle on 34th Street really was released in June of 1947. And the poster and trailer really are about as unchristmassy as they get. And when you think about it, the whole premise of the movie is quite a ways away from what we're used to with normal Christmas fare. And yet, more than 70 years later, we still return year after year to the now classic story of a little girl named Susan and her encounter with a man who says he's the real Kris Kringle. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Let's start with one big, obvious question. Why would a studio release a Christmas movie in June? Simple. Daryl Zanuck, who ran 20th Century Fox in the 1940s, didn't think that enough people went to the movies at Christmas time. He was much more interested in trying to get a summer audience to attend. That's Alonzo Duraldi. He's a film critic, podcaster, and the author of the book, Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. And the advertising does not in any way say, this is a movie about Santa Claus, and it takes place at Christmas time. There's a trailer that you can watch on YouTube, and it basically has somebody going around the Fox lot and talking to different sort of contract players of the time. And they're all talking about how much they love the movie, but one of them loves it as a comedy, and the other one loves it as a drama. And somebody else mentions, oh, it's such a great romance, but Santa Claus is not mentioned in the marketing. And as batty as the idea sounds, the gamble paid off for 20th Century Fox. Miracle on 34th Street was a smash success when it hit theaters in June. It made a star out of the young Natalie Wood. It earned a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Edmund Gwynn for his portrayal of Santa Claus. You know, when we talk about on-screen Scrooges, we tend to start with Alistair Sim. And if you're going to talk about on-screen Santa Clauses, you know, we begin with Edmund Gwynn. Not only that, but it also had the interesting side effect of making the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade 
the national institution it is today. While the parade itself had been around since 1924, it was strictly a New York thing for the first 20-odd years of its existence. The earliest TV broadcasts were just on local stations, but that iconic opening scene of Miracle on 34th Street brought the parade to the masses, and networks started broadcasting coverage nationally the year after the movie hit theaters. That's the actual 1946 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade at the beginning of the film, and, and they were given permission to, to shoot it, and uh, Edmund Gwen was in fact the Santa Claus of that parade that year. Not only that, but it also inspired the real Macy's department store to hire Christine Kringle, who would direct shoppers to better deals at competing stores, just as Chris Kringle told Macy's shoppers in the movie to go to Gimbel's. Macy's had such a big presence in the movie, the store scenes really were shot on location at Macy's, that you might be tempted to think the movie was a thinly veiled advertisement for the retailer. But it wasn't. The movie studio wanted to include Macy's to add a touch of realism in portraying Christmas in New York City. But let's step back and consider an even more basic question. This is the story of a little girl and a mother who raised her not to believe in fairy tales, which the girl understands to include Santa Claus. The girl's mother is a divorcee, which was somewhat scandalous for the time. Scandalous enough, anyway, for the Catholic Legion of Decency to give the movie a B rating for morally questionable content. Anyway, the two encounter a man who says he's the real Santa, but who may be insane. He's even committed to a mental institution after he assaults a doctor, and then he's forced to undergo a sanity hearing. It all seems a little odd, by today's standards anyway. So why did this movie strike such a chord with audiences back in 1947? You have to remember, this is right after World War II. We had just kind of collectively gone through a fairly traumatic event. The idea that the world was a hard place and this notion of kind of cynical reality that has no room for fantasy, there were probably children that knew more about the, the, the evils of the world than necessarily they should have. It was the right movie for the right cultural moment. And if it sounds like I'm being a little skeptical about the plot and its themes, it's only because I'm exploring why it has endured as long as it has. And maybe that's because, at its true core, it's the story of a little girl who never got a chance to be a little girl, and how she discovers her childlike side through the magic of Christmas and the gift of a new friend. Natalie Wood's character is that she is, for most of the film, a little adult. So she originally has to come off as kind of a killjoy, and that's not the easiest thing for a kid to play because it's sort of antithetical to the way that most children live. And she's very convincing that way. But the longer that she spends time with Chris, you see the childlike nature come out. And then by the end of the movie where, you know, they arrive at the house and, and, and she she really believes that it's all happened the way that he said it would. This is a character with a with an arc. You know, she ends the film in a very different place than where she began. Now, one thing I will admit to being skeptical about are the remakes. With the exception of the 1947 Lux Radio Theater adaptation that included the original cast, that one's actually great. But I steer clear of all the others, including the colorized version of the 1947 original. And Alonzo's with me on that one. Uh, I have never seen it in color, and I hope to never see it in color. <laughs> I've never seen a colorized movie that didn't look garish and grotesque. And even if they got it just perfectly right, I love black and white. Uh, I, I have no interest in seeing this movie colorized. It doesn't need it. 
One of the great things about Christmas is movies like Miracle on 34th Street because there's a comfort in the traditions you can return to again and again. And then there are the great things about Christmas that you only get to experience once, like a child's first Christmas, as Jimmy tells about in this Christmas memory. I've always been involved in church events and a traveling band that did a very extensive holiday tour for several years. And, uh, and all those were really great times, but I do remember my very favorite memory for Christmas was in 2015 when my little girl, Lena, uh, came into our lives. It was December 14th, and I got to take so much time off with her and my wife, and it was just the best. It was the best. We had a tree up, and we just hung out with this new life and it reminded me again uh, what I believe Christmas is all about. Jimmy is the ruddy man behind the Ruddy Man Beard Company. They make all kinds of oils and balms and accessories for taking care of your beard. Me, I couldn't grow a beard to save my life, but if I could, I'd probably want to take good care of it. So if you have a beard or you know someone who does, go to ruddymanbeard.com. And you can even get yourself a guitar pick there because Jimmy is also a musician. In fact, you're listening to some of his music right now. It's not too late to share one of your Christmas memories on the show this year. Record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspasspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave a voicemail on my Google Voice line at 650-394-7162. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks to Alonzo Duraldi and Jimmy, and thanks also to our actors from that opening scene. You heard the voices of Chris Osborne as the producer. He's the host of Play Comics, a podcast about video games based on comics. And you also heard from Austin Beach as the writer. He's from Audio Oblivious, maker of audio dramas like Winnebago Warrior. I'll put links to Alonzo's book and podcast, Ruddy Man Beard Company, Play Comics, and Audio Oblivious in the show notes for this episode at christmaspast.media. And at the bottom of every page there, you'll find links to the Christmas Past Facebook group, the YouTube channel, and my Twitter and Instagram feeds. This show is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network, a collection of the best Christmas shows around. Ones like Can't Wait for Christmas. Comedian Tim Babb brings you a year-round celebration with a new episode arriving every month about the little things that make Christmas so much fun. Things like music, movies, TV shows, decorations, recipes, and more. Find out more about Can't Wait for Christmas and all the other great Christmas Podcast Network shows at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. Please do subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of the fun in store for the rest of the season, because there's a lot more to come. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a sticker to say thanks. Email me for details. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time for more stories from Christmas Past.